We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. I hear the drums echoing tonight. Cheers only whispers of some quiet You can sing along. Oh, welcome She's back. She's coming in 12... Oh. <laughs> welcome back, dear listener. Yes, it is the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast, but we've got a special episode for you. I'm Trevor the Iron Fist. With me, fit and healthy, is Scott the Velvet Glove and Paul the Twelfth Man, and a special guest, Cam Riley, from a number of podcasts, The Bullshit Filter and Life of Caesar and a whole bunch of others. So, Cam, welcome aboard the podcast. Do I, do I get a nickname? Can I suggest my own nickname? You can. It'll be up for review. What would you like? <laughs> well, the Red Hot Poker was what I was going to go for. No, it's, uh, it's going to be derogatory in some sense. So, you know, we'll see. We'll think about that one. We'll see how I, something will come up by the end of the podcast and we'll, okay. uh, we'll work out a name for you. So, uh, trust no. me, the longer, you, the longer you spend getting to know me, the more derogatory nicknames you'll have for me. Yeah, that's what, that's what I figured. <laughs> So, dear listener, uh, Cam, we'll discuss his CV and what he's, what, he, what he's up to and why he's on here a little bit later in the podcast, but uh, we'll just launch straight into our normal uh, um, bits and pieces, and Cam will join in, and we'll see where we end up. But last, well, what happened last week, we did a number of uh, normal topics, and Cam contacted me and said that, uh, well, he indicated, I think, that he wanted to argue about some of the things that were said, so... We're up for different ideas, and, and I'm up to be convinced of other ideas. So, Cam, do you want to launch into, I believe the first topic was, we did a little piece about an Algerian woman in France who went to a citizenship ceremony, and at the ceremony she refused to shake the hand of various officials. As a result, they said, we're not going to grant you citizenship, and it went to through the French court system, and who agreed with the decision that she would not be granted citizenship and the Velvet Glove and myself thought that was a good idea and the Twelfth Man was a bit more saying, well, a handshake isn't really that bad, is it? And uh, he didn't really think it qualified as a disqualifying uh, sort of feature. So got the feeling you want to argue with Scott and I. Is that, away you go, Cam. <laughs> Yeah, I was uh, yelling at my uh, iPhone uh, uh, just a tad when I was listening to that. Um, Why? <laughs> well, um, look, I, t- here, here, I haven't thought this through very deeply, but this was my initial reaction: is that let me, let me, let, when we, whenever the subject of Australian culture comes up, because um, uh, I think you ended up talking about uh, Australia as an extension uh, uh, from that story. I, I, when it, I wonder what Australian culture is. I, I, I'm pretty sure that Australian culture today seems seems very different from what it was when I was growing up in the 70s. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it's vastly different from when my mother was growing up in the 40s, let alone what it was a century ago or two centuries ago or three centuries ago. So I think culture is one of these things that is relatively fluid. 
it moves um, relatively rapidly these days. And whenever people start talking about we, we can't do this, we can't do that, these people have to do this, they have to do that because of our culture, it's, my, my spidey sense goes off because I don't think there is such a thing as Australian culture in, in, in any, with any sort of permanence. It's, it's a fluid thing. Now, I, I agree that if somebody is uh, wanting admission to our country to become a citizen, they have to agree to abide by the laws of the country, which are themselves fluid. They move all the time. But we, we don't ask them to sign up to our culture because there is no such thing. I mean, I mean John Howard wanted people to know who John Bradman was, I seem to recall. Donald Bradman. See, I don't even know. Yeah, you would have failed. There you go. Bradman's <laughs> first name. Don, 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 that was his act. Don that Bradman. Was, that was his original name, John Bradman, but he, right. he changed it later on. Right. Um, you just you made know, that so, up, didn't you? No. Right. Look it up. And actually, give me, give me an hour, then look it up in okay. Wikipedia. Um, but, but before you go, <laughs> before we go too much further, just back to the French decision then. So you're saying that that the French officials should not have done that and the court should not have ruled that way. Uh, look, far be it from me to tell the people of France uh, what they should or should not do. I'm, I'm speaking uh, in terms of the Australia. Look, I think it's ridiculous, yeah, uh, but that's a, it's a matter for the, the, the French people uh, to decide. But again, French culture has changed dramatically over the last 100 years. Okay, so, Cam, before we go any further... Back to the mm. French position. Uh, do you mm. agree with the French court or disagree with, with their disagree. decision? Disagree. No, I think, I think it's ridiculous, yeah. Right. Not the first ridiculous thing the French have done, but, yeah, right. it's ridiculous. Okay. Okay. I was listening today to the Religion and Ethics Report podcast, and they had a section on the citizenship saga in France is what it was headed up as. And they made a very interesting point there. They said that the three basic tenets of French uh, culture is liberty, egalité, fraternity. And then they said you could add to that laicite, which is secular values. Now, that is where I think that they were coming from. They were saying to this woman, you are an Algerian national who's wanting to become French. Therefore, you have to ignore your religious upbringing and you have to get over your fear of shaking the hand of a man and you have to do that in order to become French. So that is where I thought that the French court was ruling on was to back up the laicite part. So you mean to say when I go to Paris in July, um, I won't be able to go to Notre Dame Cathedral? It'll be shut down? Why? Well, because it's secular, apparently. They said there's no religion in France. There are no religious no, people. No, what they're saying is that you've got, you've got to be able to remove the religion from the state. And what's that, what they, that's what they were doing. By saying that you've got to be able to shake this person's hand, that was what they were doing. How I, I don't see how is that. Her personal refusal to shake somebody's hand, remove whatever her reasoning is. There's a lot of people I meet. I don't want to shake their hand. <laughs> yeah, but you're not, you're, not go, you're not going up for citizenship by not, not shaking I'll, their I'll hand. Sh- <laughs> <laughs> My point is... I'm pretty sure in France, as well as in Australia, it is not against the law not to shake somebody's hand. It's not, against the, it's not against the law, however, that they have, they have this rule for their citizenship, and I'd have no problem with it. 
And that is, that, that's what the argument is, is it comes down to whether or not you are prepared to accept the values of Lacerte in your life. Clearly she wasn't. Did she state, did she state that? No, she didn't state that. She refused, she refused to shake his hand, which I think okay. is a fairly strong argument to say that she wasn't prepared to accept Lacerte. I'll, 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 I'll run an argument here, Cam. Let me say that is it, you know, is it okay for a, a government to to value assimilation, for example, of its of its immigrants? Um, is that a reasonable thing for a government to value and want and encourage? Value, want, and encourage, definitely. Yep. Uh, so, pass laws around that? No. Determine who, you know, whether or not somebody is uh, should be allowed to become a citizen, a citizen of a country based around that. No, I don't think so. So let's let's just use the handshake as a as an indicator of a whole host of probable issues. That if somebody is refusing to shake somebody's hand, let's just assume it's because that they're Muslim, and that. It comes with a whole raft of other um, ideas that are, you know, that probably won't want their, possibly won't want their kids to swim in a swimming pool with the opposite sex in a mixed swimming class, for example, or uh, might want to encourage wearing the veil, or a whole host of things that we associate, say, with the Muslim faith. That um, so, so, if we just, ex- you know, because obviously, if the only thing was just a bare handshake. Um, and that was the only thing, then I think we'd all agree that that's not something to stop somebody getting citizenship. But I think we can also say it's an, in, an indication of, of a state of mind as to how much this person's going to get involved in French life and the French community. And I would have thought that as a group, a, a, a people, a country, is entitled to say, look, we need people to be part of our community, genuinely integrated into our community and part of it. Like it's in societies function better when people are active within active participants and not leading a sort of a parallel existence. So, you know, I think what they'd say is that in the UK they encouraged multiculturalism in the sense of parallel lives and living whereas the French have tried to encourage assimilation. And I think that's the right tactic by the French as opposed to the UK. And if a government is trying to send a signal or is trying to state a value that they want assimilation and they, they want the immigrants to, to become involved in the community, I think that's a fair enough thing to do. Is there any... Anything in that convince you, Cam? No, as I said before, I, I, I think it's all well and good to say that we value integration. I value integration. I mean, I, I, I believe that uh, integration is is not uh, well. I, yeah, a, a very very important thing that we should be stressing for people because it's 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 um, the best way to share ideas, uh, and extract the most out of our population. But if you're going to start passing laws, and I, I'm assuming this is, if you say the court ruled in favour of this, it's mm. it's some part of a law or the constitution, the secularism, is that what you're suggesting? 
Well, well, the court backed up the decision of the authorities to refuse citizenship because she refused to shake the hand of the officials. So the court said, yep, that's, that was OK. So, OK, so essentially what we're saying here, what they're saying is uh, we don't want Muslims because this is part of her religious culture. We're assuming that's why she didn't well, want to well, shake hands. Or, or perhaps, perhaps we don't want hard-line Muslims. You're right. We don't want um, believing uh, Sunni. I assume she's probably Sunni. We don't want Sunni Muslims who are religious coming into our country because we don't like their religion. But no, it could have been that we don't want them because, not because they're religious, but because of their social practices of wanting to cover their face, not shake people's hands... Uh, not be part of the community, wall themselves off into into a micro community that that just lives separately to the rest of France. You know, if if you know that's perhaps the reason why, and is that a legitimate reason? Not not just because they're religion, but it's because of the nature of the particular way that they were practicing a religion that was affecting other other people. Well, again, I'd come back to the laws of the country. Is practicing their religion going to be breaking the laws? If it's not breaking the laws, you're just targeting them because you don't like that religion. You don't like how they practice their religion is what it comes down to as far as I can tell. Yeah, yeah, but if they're not breaking the law. Well, no, because they haven't, they haven't actually um, – what they're doing is she was applying for the privilege of citizenship. So she, as an individual, is saying to a group, hey – I want to be part of your group. I want full rights and membership of your group. And the group is saying to her, that's okay, you can join our group, but actually we've got some requirements for people who join our group and, and this is what they are. So you don't have to join our group if you don't want to. You can continue to live here as, as the wife of a, of a French citizen. But if you want to join our group, then here's, here's our rules. So... Are, are groups allowed to to set rules that the that the group decides upon as to entry by individuals, or can an individual just say to the group, "I don't care about your rules. I just want to be in anyway." No, of course they can. The, the group can decide what rules they set. You're asking me whether or not I agree with the rules. I think the rules are stupid. Yeah. yeah. So I it's think not. I, so it's not a case I, of discrimination. Or, it, you know, I mean, it can, well, can it be is. a discrimination. Yes, it can, but it's totally it could be discrimination. a, you know, discrimination can be unfair and it can be fair. So, you know, basketball teams unfairly, uh, you know, fairly discriminate against short people. That's, sorry for uh, Ray, but, you know, that's just the way it works out. And, you know, uh, modelling agencies discriminate fairly against ugly people, which is a problem for Ray again, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> These guys look at me. They don't know who Ray is. You'll have to you're play. You're pulling my in jokes into your show. That doesn't work. I oh, know, but hey, it's my show. I can have a laugh in it if I want to. <laughs> That's what I, I say. Yeah. No, you look. You're right, and I guess so. The question is, and and again, I'm bringing it back to Australia. Is um, yeah, but I don't want to bring it back to Australia yet. I want to sort out okay. the French system first. Yes, Are the, the French, French entitled as a group to say who can join their group or not? 
Yes, and and they're free to be racists, and they're free to be uh, uh, to discriminate against whoever they want. It's the, it's their country, and and discrimination can be fair. There can be good reasons to discriminate against certain people. Sure, and there can be terrible, bad reasons to yep. discriminate and, against and, people. And, too. and I would just say that you know we we have a system of our society is so interconnected. People give up half their income to the government in order to provide services. And there's a great. Oh, which deal. country are you talking about? Are you talking about France here or Australia? Well, well all sorts of countries. But thought you wanted to keep it on France. Well, I don't know the exact. Um, Sorry, French it's your show. Tax rate. You <laughs> uh, but the French, but, the French top marginal tax rate is in excess of fifty percent. Oh, there we go. Thank you, Scott. No worries. But in in any event, people give up a significant amount um, as the price they pay for civilization, and one of the reasons they do that is is a belief that we're all working together and that, you know, if something bad happens to them, then other people will hopefully chip in to look after them, a sort of an interdependence and a, and a cooperation. And that only works if people are confident that we're all on the same page. And when everyone's off on a different page, that that system of interdependence starts to break down into into chaos and people become less reluctant or become more reluctant to to participate in the give and take of a modern society if so i think it's i don't i think it's fair for a government to say hang on we need our groupiness to be strong because without it our cooperation will be less and our society will be less so i wouldn't say it's yes it is discrimination but i wouldn't say it's unfair Okay. Well, that's that's a subjective thing. You get to decide yeah. whether you think it's fair or you don't. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just think, speaking, thinking of France, is it's not a monoculture. I've spent a lot of time in France. I have a lot of French friends. I have a lot of French listeners. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a monoculture. I mean, there's, there's a high percentage of atheists in France, but there's also a lot of, lot of Catholics in France, yep. a lot of Christians. So it's not a single culture. It's not like religion is banned anymore in france for a nice brief shining moment it was mm-hmm. um but uh <laughs> but napoleon did a concordat with the pope don't get me into that but there was a you know they they tolerate religion in france they tolerate muslims in france um they've they've done terrible things to muslim countries in particular algeria and of recent libya and other places um so I just think it's uh, it's very short-sighted to try and even drive a monoculture. As, as much as an atheist as I am, I wouldn't try and stipulate that we move towards a monoculture because there, there's a lot of dangers in um, saying I just want to be surrounded by people like me in a corporate culture and in a national yep. culture. And I don't think the French are necessarily guilty of that because you could view it as saying that they're, they're judging – certain things as either good or bad and they're happy with variety people don't have to be the same but there are some basic fundamentals that that need to be in place so you can't you know, be a practicing be, be, be you can't as, be a practicing sunni muslim no no it, it's more the specifics of you you have to we we want your kids to go to school with our kids we want to see your face we want to be able to shake hands with people. We want to conduct common courtesies. Now, knock your socks off what you do at home. 
and do all sorts of other crazy stuff that you might be into, but just some basic level of of signals of cooperation is what you could argue the French are saying. They're not demanding everybody be the same, but they're just asking for a a fairly, just a baseline of of cooperation and intermingling. Mm. Yeah. Is it, is it not related to shared values? I mean, we, we often get back to this point, don't we, of shared values. And, you know, the, 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 the signal that woman is, I mean, if she was smart, she would have just shook the guy's hand, you know, sort of gritted her teeth and shook his hand, and she would have had what she wanted. Mm. But by, through her act of defiance, um, was, wasn't she signalling that her religion was more important than the secular values of the French? Uh, well, that's, what, um, that's, on, that's on the assumption that she was no actually doing, she was doing this out of religion, out of, out of her religious Well, belief. they do have secular values. I know they do have yeah. secular values, yeah, for sure. But the, 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 assumption is, the assumption is that that's why she didn't shake the guy's hand, was because she was a Muslim and he was a man. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry I cut you off, Cameron. You were still you wanting to shout into your iPhone again, Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> Where do, I, I don't understand this thing about France having secular values. France is a very religious country. I don't have the stats in front of me. If I knew we were going to get in, so I would have pulled them up. Where, where do, how did we come to this conclusion that France has secular values? Because they have banned the hijab, they have banned the yamulka, and they have banned um, large crucifixes from school students. According to Wikipedia, 2016 census, 51.1% of the French self-identify as Christian, 5.6% is Islam, bit of bit of Jew, 39.6% um, no religion. Mm-hmm. So you're telling me that a country with 51% that's 51% Christian has secular values. Yes, absolutely. Look, can, yeah, can, because can, they, they they keep they, they keep it out of their government. Yes. You can be Christian so, and secular. And that's the whole point, isn't it? A lot of Christians are, you know, these days a lot of Christians when if asked uh, which is more important to you, your membership of this uh, nation of French people, Australian people, whatever, or what you do on Sundays at church, I think a lot of Christians even would say, well, yeah, the, the, the more important thing is the, the, the nation they belong to. And I think for the French, for French Christians, for the majority of them, and, and this is an assumption on my part, I'll, yeah. I, I, I'll um, give you that, that um, they would say that the secular values of the French nationality or citizenship are important to them. Whereas that woman, by refusing to shake the man's hand, was basically saying, no, my, my religious, my Islamic religious values are paramount here. And Hold on, 12th man, I thought you were on my side. When did you jump side? <laughs> Look, I am. I think I, think I, I slayed am, him. Cam, to, to, to the point where I would agree with you, I don't think a handshake per se was a very good grounds for refusing citizenship. But I'm sort of... I, I agree with... Uh, Trevor and Scott, as much as I think for a country to maintain some sort of, you know, uh, civil harmony, they, people need to share the values. And what Trevor was saying about um, membership of the group is quite valid. And by her saying, no, my Islamic values are more important, she was basically thumbing her nose at the, the values of that group in a sense. Again, I think this whole concept of shared values is a crock of shit. 
There's how many million people live in France? I guarantee you that their values are all over the place. Where does it state this is the shared values of every person who lives well, in we're France? We're not saying every person. Some of those, some of those Christians are Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Do you think they have peculiar values versus the, the mainstream? A, but they're minorities. So, so would they would they stop a, a Mormon becoming a, a citizen because? Uh, I'm trying to think of the extra ultra weird things. We're not, to, we're not saying it's unanimous what what the thoughts of French people are, but we are saying it's more or less a majority um, view. Or, yeah, there or are holding. some general principles that yeah. I think a majority of French citizens would uh, concur with. And, and the point about Mormons is, you know, the, the French would say, "Sure, um, come and become a French citizen," because. You're going to shake our hand. You're going to send your kids to the same school. You're going to you're going to eat a baguette. You're you're going to be part of the community, and we don't care what you do on on Mormon Saturdays or Sundays. But we don't Saturdays. we don't care what you do. So oh, it's it, it yeah. isn't necessarily a religious based thing. It's it's about in an in, in involvement and a willingness to to assimilate into mm. the community. Anyway, mm. we're well. Uh, did you want to bring it back to Australia or are you done with this topic, Cam? <laughs> well, look, to me, when people start talking about this values thing, it's, it's, um, it's code, I think, for discrimination, which at the end of the day ties down to racial fears and prejudices. Um, getting, back to, cause, okay, getting back to Australia, this whole John Howard and uh, Don Bradman, um, like as somebody born and raised in Australia, I don't have a fucking clue who Don Bradman is. Yes, um, you do. I've I've heard that I know he he, he played cricket. That's you know all his batting I know. average. No, no, I don't know I the know. batting average, which is one of the questions in the citizenship test, mm. isn't it? I I, yeah. I know he played cricket. That's all I know. I don't know. You couldn't get me to name a single living sports person in this country. Um, so when we talk about Australian values and Australian culture. I think it's a crock of shit. I think, you know... But that wasn't about values, Cam. That that list of, you know, random facts about Australia, that wasn't about values. That was random facts about Australia. And a lot of people would agree with you. It was a ludicrous requirement. Mm -hmm. I, in fact, was involved in teaching migrants and refugees. Um, uh, I, I, I worked at a small college in Brisbane where we had the majority of our clients were refugees and... And migrants. In fact, the majority were refugees. So in the class that I taught about, about how to get Australian citizenship was that very same list with Donald Bradman on it. Now, I didn't take it terribly seriously, and I don't think many people did, but that wasn't about values so much as just random facts that John Howard seemed to mistakenly think um, was some sort of identifying marker of an Australian. And, and I agree with you, it was a load of crap. But the values are definitely more important. And they're values of fairness, of equality, of, you know, gender equality, for goodness sake, of individual autonomy. And these were the things that, as a, as a teacher at the time, I was trying to convey to the, to the people in the classes. It wasn't, you know, learning these stupid facts, although if they, if they needed to learn them to pass the test, I'm sure most of them would have done their best to, to memorise what they needed. But it was, it was this idea that... And, and for me, it comes down to basic things like, would you marry somebody outside of your uh, ethnic group? To me, that's fundamental, and I know 
you know, my experience in Australia is probably similar to yours. Growing up um, in the post-war migration boom that we did experience, where a lot of people came initially probably were a little bit reluctant to marry outside of their national or ethnic group, but but eventually they did. You know, they let go of the you know of their parents' sort of reluctance to mingle and and totally mix and integrate, and now they're just normal Aussies. Now, what worries me about um, uh, Muslims, particularly Muslims who stick pretty closely to their religious principles, is that they're dead set against marrying anyone who isn't a member of the Muslim religion. And to me, that's a problem, you know. If more of them were willing to let that go and marry outside the the religious faith, I hate that word, faith, but... um, I, th- I think re- uh, integration would come along fine and, you know, in another generation or so, they would just be normal Aussies too. But, you know, uh, this is where I see as our government is falling down and failing, failing everybody by not more strongly trying to convey this sense of, of what it is to be an Australian. It, it, it is to, regardless of you know, skin colour or ethnic background to see each other as equals, as, as treating each other as as equals and, you know, as, as somebody... Sorry, should I, be, should I be standing during this speech, uh, 12th Man? I'm hand over my heart, take my hat off. I'm, I'm getting a little bit teary here. Well, I know you, I know, I know you've you probably guys got a box of tissues deal. handy, have you, you just in case? A, well, I have a box of tissues handy for something else, but... Uh, yeah, well, look, I can, I can tell you, hand on heart, I, I had some very moving experiences work, working with those refugees and immigrants, and a lot of them, a lot of them were, in fact, uh, from Muslim countries. But uh, it was it was an extremely personally rewarding work for me, I have to say. But so look, let's let's. But, sorry, but let's I think you're, I think you're misconstruing to... and misrepresenting the whole point of of um, you know inducting people into citizenship. Let's talk about this, uh, mm. you know, f- fair go. Uh, and what did would you say? Australian values are. Uh, what, what did you sum them up as before? Uh, equality, <laughs> equality, fair go, absolutely. When, when when did we get uh, gay marriage laws in this country? Fairly recently. Mm. <laughs> so so what happened to equality before then and a fair go uh, for everybody? It was definitely imperfect. No argument. Well, it's a crock of shit. Is my point not imperfect? Let's not beat around the bush here. It's bullshit. Would would you say that Australians are different to the British in the sense of um, class? Oh, well, you know, we're, we're several rungs up on the evolutionary ladder than the British, my friend. Like, let's not get around. But, but no, but my point is, if you went to um, spend any time in London or the UK, my understanding would be that, that there's quite a strong class distinction still operates there, which, which does not operate here, for example. I mean, is there a difference like that between Australians and British? Oh, I don't know. You go spend... Enough time around the leafy suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne, man, and there's uh, still a lot of class uh, concepts, class warfare going so, on so in this just, country all the time. So you don't accept that that, that the British no. have got a, a greater propensity to um, I think they've got, to observe class and be aware of class than Australians. No, I think they've got a longer tradition of it than we do, and it's it's more tightly integrated into their mindset, but I think it exists so, almost so think, as much here. Probably not. Okay, but these are the sort of general concepts where you can say one group of people has a different value, attitude, propensity, 
call it what you will. So, you know, an Amer Americans, for example, would have a great sense of freedom of individual as opposed to the Japanese who would be more inclined to worry about collective uh, responsibility. So we, we can talk about groups of people in countries as, as having broad differences. And sure, there are exceptions, and sure, there are individual laws like marriage equality, etc., that, that don't tie up with that perfectly. But you can, you can actually you know, make some broad brush pictures of different groups and say, well, they're different to that group in this sense. Yeah, you can broad brush a lot of things. But when you get down to the nitty gritty, does it stand up to investigation? Let's talk, I mean, we we're talking about marrying people in your, your own economy. The story from my own family is um, my uh, classic story just before World War One. my uh, great-grandmother, 16, got herself knocked up, good Catholic girl, <laughs> by, by a Protestant. Um, <laughs> he, he went off to Gallipoli, mm. um, which is my only connection with Anzac Day. Um, he's writing her letters saying, I love you, I love you, I can't wait to see you. He doesn't know she's knocked up. She's writing letters back saying, I love you, I love you, stay safe, can't wait to get back. Uh, my great-great-grandmother is intercepting these letters mm -hmm. to make sure that uh, her good Catholic daughter doesn't marry a dirty Protestant. Mm -hmm. um, they basically individually decided, oh, well, uh, he or she is ignoring me. Um, great-great-grandmother didn't know that my great-grandmother was pregnant, by the way. Great-grandmother mm -hmm. <laughs> went from Bundaberg down to Brisbane, had the kid, put him in an orphanage. Um, the great-great-grandfather... Um, uh, no, great-grandfather. Great-grandfather never knew when his whole life, not knowing that uh, he'd knocked up this girl, she had a kid, he had four kids, when, you know, he died. So, I mean, that was the Australian culture, at least from my great-great-grandmother's perspective, a little under a century ago. Our culture changes, our value changes. I don't yes, think we can drive uh, a stake in agree the with you and 100%. say this is our culture, this is our values. I agree with you 100%. Cultures change and they should change. They absolutely and, have to change, yeah. And you look at all the fear that, that uh, our parents had around Greek and Italian and then Vietnamese immigration in the 70s. One of my greatest joys, I don't know how you guys feel about this, is going into uh, a 7-Eleven or a corner store and there's somebody of obvious Asian descent behind the counter and they go, their accent is broader than mine. Mm. G'day, mate. Yep. What do you want? Yeah, that'll be twelve ninety five. It always, it always cracks me up, mm. and I love it. And I've seen that with my children's friends that came over here from Nairobi or Kenya or the Sudan, and their parents uh, hang out in their own communities. You know, there's a number of them around Brisbane where these communities stick to stick together. They have their little enclaves. But their kids are as Aussie as Aussie as Aussie can be. So I'm not worried about first-generation immigrants coming in and wanting to stick to their own. I think within a generation or two, it all comes out in the wash generally. Okay. So you, um, you don't see that a Muslim immigrant is any less likely to integrate or assimilate than, say, the Italian-Greek migrant of the 60s and 70s? You don't think there's yeah. going to be any propensity to be different? 
Not as far as I know. No, the Greeks and Italians and the Vietnamese all stuck. That's why we have little Vietnam and little Italy and little Greece. I'm thinking of Melbourne. Brisbane, it's a cultural desert. But in, in Melbourne, where I spent most of my adult life, all of these enclaves, and they stuck together. They married into their own religion, into their own, you know, the, 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 the came from the same village or the same hometown, all that kind of stuff. I'm going to have to disagree with you there. But the but kids and the grandkids didn't. I'd love to find a statistic on on marriages by the sort of second generation of immigrants and broken down into cultural groups. Without the stats, we can only talk about anecdotes and I went to a school that was full of uh, Italian um, families and, you know, my feelings were that at the end of the day a lot of them, you know, married Aussie girls or or whatever and sure, they some married some Italians but they sort of spread out in the community and, and my feeling is, but I don't have any stats, is that the Muslim Muslim population is far less likely to do that. They're far more rigid in holding people into their community, and that's a problem. But Well, I don't yeah. think you can put statistics on it because the Islamic wave of migrants into Australia is only 20 or 30 years old. Yeah. Now, whereas the Greeks and Italians uh, is 50 to 60 years old. True. And I do think that um, I, I tend to agree with Cameron there is that... Um, what? I, I do agree with Cameron in that two <laughs> or three generations' time, there will be no difference. Wow. Okay. Yeah. No, because you, you think about it, you've got, you've got, if the Islamic, uh, if the Islamic, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, experience is anything like mine, then they will have their blinkers removed over time. It will, the Islamic faith will be removed from them over yeah, time. Yeah, I think my wife, you, you've met my wife, um, yeah, I know. I Scott and Paul, you might have. Chrissy, she, she's a Mormon uh, girl, grew up in Utah, a little, little town, little country town in Utah. Uh, true believing Mormon, surrounded by true believing Mormons mostly, um, never questioned her religion until at the age of 18 as an exchange student, she went to Germany and was, it was living with um, host families over there that weren't Mormon. And she was like, oh, my God, I've always heard all my life that non-Mormons were evil. Uh, Satan worshippers, and these are really nice people. Mm. Um, and and I think that that's just what happens if you're in a if you're in an open community. You don't have to worry about the integration of the first generation. It's the second, it's the third, it's the fourth generation where they become Aussies in the long run. Yeah, I mean, you going. It's going to be a. I, I, I fear it's going to be a little slower than what was happening with the Greeks and Italians and the Vietnamese. However, I do believe it will happen over time. It might take four generations, but it will happen. Can and this we- gets back to you guys were arguing about multiculturalism on the last show as well, and uh, yeah, we were. You, yeah. You were t- <laughs> yeah, there was a line there. I'll quote it for you, and you can just run with this one, Cam. Um, Accordingly, the universalism and inclusivity of the civil rights movement appears to be the ardent multiculturalists as an embarrass- appears to the ardent multiculturalists as an embarrassing form of cultural imperialism. You didn't like that. Oh. You said we were doing. You said we were. We, we were speaking cultural imperialism nonsense. I think is what <laughs> you, your comment was to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. Look, it just gets back to have, having um, lived in Melbourne for twenty years and and embraced the the multiculturalism of Melbourne. I, mean, I think Melbourne. 
most people who live in Melbourne sort of have embraced the idea of multiculturalism. Um, it, it, it's one of the strong suits of living in Melbourne. It's one of the things that makes it a great place. Um, and I don't think there's any um, – uh, I, I can't remember the actual stuff you guys were going on about in the last episode because it went for four hours in, <laughs> in my brain. You weren't taking notes? Fried at some point. No, I was just yelling at the phone. Um <laughs> Anyway, there but, was there was yeah. I can't remember the point that I got angry about when I listened to that. Can I ask a question, Camp? Now, if multiculturalism and and don't get me wrong, I'm not against multiculturalism per se. At least, I might be against some of the ways it's been implemented by various governments. But you know, I'm I have no, nothing against people of different ethnicities. I don't give a shit what colour their skin is. Come to live in Australia and become part of our community. But in what ways uh, are you so rapturously in love with multiculturalism in Melbourne? I mean, what, how, in what sort of ways, tangibly, has it enriched your life? Well, I had lots of friends um, from all sorts of backgrounds um, that opened my eyes uh, in terms of political awareness, philosophical. You know, I remember during Gulf War One, so 1990, 91, I had a bunch of Lebanese mates uh, who would be sitting in their – I was 20, 21 – sitting in their garage late at night while they were making thick black coffee from a powder with, with, with about 40 cups of sugar in it on, on a little hot plate on a, on, a, on a saucepan. We would sit around and we would talk about uh, American imperialism. They would talk about American imperialism and how – you know, they'd screwed Saddam, they were his best mate, and then they screwed him, and it was all about oil and control of the Middle East. And I was like, fucking what? What are you guys going on about? And that set me off onto, to, you know, I started reading um, political literature. It, they politicized me, these guys. So I had Italian friends, Greek friends, Lebanese friends, Vietnamese friends. And it, it opened my eyes to, you know, coming from growing up in Bundaberg, which was, you know, as bad as white bread as you can get, redneck white bread. Uh, it, it totally opened my, my eyes to a whole bunch of stuff. So that and, and just the food and the music and the culture and, and the art and, and kind of, you know, everywhere. Friends, um, the friendships. Uh, um, yeah. But didn't you say before that, you know, they became just ordinary Aussies? So how was their friendship essentially different? Because they had um, views on history and geopolitics that were informed by their their parents, their families, their conversations with their families. They had a very different view of international geopolitics and, and also on food and music and that stuff that was informed by their heritage. They were still Aussies, um, but with this whole different background to somebody with a, you know, purely Australian background. My dad was a Scott, but, you know, it's, it's pretty much... I don't, I don't know what you're getting at, Charles, man, because surely just exposure a, to, to diversity broadens the mind. It, so, it can do. Yep. It can do. But, I mean, people of all sorts of ethnicities, and regardless of what country you go to, um, you know, your average person, they also have their prejudices and their biases and their ignorances, you know. I mean, you can't assume that just because they come from another country that they're better informed than you are. 
they may they may be or they may not be but i don't i don't think you can assume that they are just because they're from a from the middle east that they understand middle east and geopolitics better than a, a well educated australian might they certainly have a personal perspective on things that and those personal perspectives would be uh, cleansed out of our news coverage of it mm. so by talking to someone that grew up in iraq they're going to have a different perspective from what we would have. Yeah. Well, look, I remember having a young woman from Iraq in one of my classes a few years ago, and the topic of Saddam Hussein came up. And I asked her, you know, she said something about Saddam Hussein, and I said, so uh, what do you, what's your feeling about Saddam Hussein? And she said, well, he's, he's our president. Mm-hmm. And I said, so you think he's a good man? Yes, he's our president. I mean, she clearly was totally unaware of the the awful things he'd done to the Iraqi people. Uh, so some just because of, she some, was from some Iraq Iraqi people. didn't make her a better informed person, you know? Mm. Just, just getting back to that, uh, the cultural imperialism, I'll just refresh your memory, I think, um, when you were yelling into the iPhone, um, Cam. So... What we've got is the civil rights movement, uh, the Martin Luther King style, is saying that everyone needs to be treated equally and everyone needs to have opportunity and, and freedom and liberty. And, and sort of the fetish for multiculturalism and the pre- preservation of, of cultural groups has, has sort of said, look, this particular group, they, they don't need those special rules of liberty. They, they have their own ways and traditions and we shouldn't be forcing our notions of universal freedom on them because who are we to, to tell them how to live their lives? And so the article was saying that civil libertarians try to impose ideas of freedom and liberty on some of these groups they are accused of cultural imperialism. Does that happen or not? Look, I don't, I don't feel educated to, to make a comment on that. I, I don't know what they're accused of. Um, they're accused I, I of forcing a Western style of thought process onto racial groups who have a, have a, have a cultural or ethnic groups who have a different cultural expectation, and that's, that's imperialism by the majority culture on the on the on the minority culture, when really it's 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 trying to provide a universal set of human rights. So that, that's what the article was saying. Yeah. Look. I, well, I, I don't think Australia's got a very good uh, human grasp of human rights uh, to start with. Our 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 prevailing uh, federal government. Um, and the preceding federal governments, I think we're doing an appalling job of human rights on a number of fronts. And we've been criticised in that regard by the United Nations Human Rights Commission. So, um, and whenever they criticise us, we say, fuck off, who are you? What do you know? Leave us alone. The United Nations Human Rights Commission is currently headed by Saudi Arabia? um, uh, Yeah, sure. And we're going to accept criticism of our human rights records from a group led by the Saudis. Yeah, yeah, we are. Because you know why? We signed up to the United Nations. 
So when you when you when you sign up to the United Nations Charter, mm-hmm. you agree to become part of a global community. If you don't like some of the people in that global community, you can't just go, well, I'm not going to listen to what the rest of the body says just because I don't like you know, the, some of the aspects of the country that's uh, taking the uh, temporary chairpersonship mm-hmm. of it. And, and the like Saudis it, have, have taken on board all the principles of the United Na- Nations Declaration of Human Rights, have they? No, but I, I'm, I'm not a Saudi and I'm, I'm not here to defend Saudi Arabia. I think Saudi Arabia's government is a terrible, terrible uh, uh, theocracy. And I've done... I did 25 episodes on the Syrian civil war recently, half of which was criticizing Saudi Arabia. The other half was criticizing the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not here to, I'm not talking, I'm not here to talk about Saudi Arabia. He was talking about Australia's track record. Do you think 12th man that Australia has a good track record in uh, how we conduct our human rights with our indigenous population and with uh, asylum seekers? Look, relatively speaking, and, and you know, if you take a, a broad historical perspective, yes, it's it's been imperfect, certainly, and our our record with our indigenous people leaves a lot to be desired. But you know, you, you've got to you've got to have a bit of perspective, you know, a bit of historical and and global perspective. And I think Australia comes up pretty well compared with most other places in the world. Yes, I do. Right. Yeah, we can compare ourselves to other places that are worse, but I don't think we're doing a good job. I'm not proud of our human rights record. Mm. Just, um, I well, mean, I've got just... a couple of things that I can agree with you there, but I, I tend to agree with the 12th man there. I think that um, generally speaking, we do have a reasonable record on human rights. However, you're right, the way we treat uh, asylum seekers and that sort of stuff leaves a lot to be desired. Um, when you're talking, Cam, about um, human rights, and you mentioned two groups there, asylum seekers and um, Aboriginals. So in terms of human rights, our Australia's treatment of Aboriginal people now, how do you rate that? Forgetting about his- history, but just our treatment now. Oh, well, look, again... Um I, I don't feel very qualified to speak about this. I'd have to uh, phone a friend, phone one of my uh, <laughs> indigenous friends on that. I mean, I, I, I think. You, you, so when you, you said can't... our human rights record was bad, you, you're really talking, at least with the Aboriginal side of that equation, our historical <clears throat> track record rather than our current practice. Uh, well, I think there's some current practices that have been appalling. I mean, by current, I mean in the last what ten years. Um, I'm, I'm not up to date with everything that's going on, but uh, uh, you know, certainly our historical track record and our difficulties in coming to terms with that as a nation, and our difficulties in figuring out uh, a better form of reparations as a nation, uh, I think continues to this very day. Okay, so, and then on the asylum seeker question, so thinking, coming to mind is like Manus and Nauru and places like that. So if 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 it was a Cameron Riley government in charge at the moment, what would change in terms of our border protection and and all that sort of stuff? What what, what would you be doing differently? I'd get rid of uh, euphemisms like border protection for a start. Yep. Look, I 
I'm I'm pro immigration. Uh, generally speaking, I think Australia's very large country with a relatively small population in terms of per square kilometre, our per capita population is very small compared to most countries. We've got a very high wealth uh, per capita, very low population density. We're, we have a lot of opportunities to bring people in. Uh, we've done very little in terms of st- strategic thinking, in terms of how to do that successfully. Um, I think the time is going to come in the not too distant future where we're going to be forced to bring in millions and millions of people into this country uh, because their archipelagos are all going to be underwater um, or too hot to survive in anyway. And and we can keep sticking our head in the sand and saying, no, we don't want people to come in. But it's just in the same way that we're sticking our head in the sand, no, coal's going to be around forever. An economy built on coal's going to last forever. Mm. Don't need to worry about it. It's the same thing, thinking that uh, we don't need to accept the reality that as a result of a number of factors, climate change being one and and uh, uh, the long-term effects of European imperialism from the 19th and 20th century being another one, that um, we're, we're going to be faced with a situation where we have to bring in millions of people. Personally, I think it's a good thing to bring in um, as many people as we possibly can and as quickly as we possibly can, get them up and running and being productive in our economy. So, so, just, um, so just back to, I hate to use the... It's stuck in my head now, the euphemism, border protection. But turning back, the would, so in a Cameron Riley government, um, the, the, the naval vessels that we've got out there turning boats back, you'd be bringing them back and saying, stop that, just let them come. Is that what you'd be doing? Not without some uh, infrastructure in place to figure out how to process them and get them up and running when they come here. But yeah, All right, I, so I, would, I would have been doing that for the last 30 years. And, and I certainly wouldn't be sticking them on shitty concentration camps. And, and is there any limit to the number that we would allow to cross? Over? Yeah, there probably is, but it's a much bigger number than uh, you and I can talk about, you know, or, or where the current policy thinking is. Like it's, it's an investment. Bringing people into this country is an investment in our future economy. We're two-tenths of fuck all of the global population, right? Well, what do we... <laughs> what is our percentage of the global... I'm not, that, I'm not sure if that's an, a real mathematical statistic there or if I'm remembering it incorrectly, but we're not a very big country in terms of sure. population. No, we, yeah. in terms of population, we're not a very big country. One of the other things we don't have an awful lot of is water. Now, that is something that you need to sustain human life, is water. And yeah, Qatar doesn't have any water either, but their sorry? population's... Qatar doesn't have any water either, but their population's quite sizable. Well, yeah. And they're not bringing in any immigrants either, Qatar, are they? What is the population of Qatar? <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember. And they all, they're all in cities on the coast, and they have uh, desalination plants which are paid for with their petrodollars. But, yeah. but, but Cameron, if you were, say... 2.46 million. If you, oh, if you earn a living tiny. as a taxi driver, for that's example... That's a tiny place, yeah. Uh, let's, if, if you earn a living as a taxi driver or in a, a low-skilled job that a typical new immigrant could do upon arrival, do you think you'd feel the same way? I am in a low-skilled job. I make podcasts for a living. Yeah, yeah but an immigrant <laughs> can't do that. Why not? It's... it's it, 
it re- as as you know, Cam, it requires enormous skill, <laughs> which we're demonstrating <laughs> right now, demonstrating and it cultural up, yeah. knowledge and all the rest of it. But yeah. you know, uh, here, here's an argument. I'll, I'll just put this through as devil's advocate. But a lot of the people who advocate for high immigration, higher immigration rates, are people who are cosy in positions where their job is not at risk of being overtaken by an immigrant. And if you were a taxi driver in Sydney or you were a, an office cleaner or, or doing some menial job, the, the thought of two or 300,000 new immigrants arriving in town and, and battling for your job would be scary. But it's, it's easy when you've got... This is, a, this is a straw man argument you're putting forward, though. I mean, how do we know they're going to be battling for your job? As I said before, mm. there needs to be some, some thought put behind this, some strategy, some infrastructure. So where are we going to, where are we going to put these people? Are we, going to, are we going to build a multifunction polis in the centre of Australia? Oh, there's no water. Okay, we'll figure out how we'll get water there. That can't be the biggest problem in the world. What are they going to do? How are they going to be productive? Where are they going to live? How are they going to, how are they going to they're work? They're all going these, to come these, to Sydney and Melbourne because that's what they do now. Is, not necessarily. Only if we're that's not let the them. only option. Only if that's the option. The but, only but, option that you give them. But are we not going to let them? And no, they'll be accused of maybe. Of, maybe we can provide alternative options. Australia is a very big place. We're not investing in building the infrastructure to accept uh, a, a major influx of immigrants that can give a boost to our long-term economic uh, success and social, socio-cultural success as well i feel like i'm on the australia is this the australian podcast like you know rupert murdoch's australian or am am i (laughs) no but i'm just or is this i'm just have i gone have i got is joe bielke peterson running this podcast i feel like i'm in the 70s on a murdoch paper Uh, we we might sound right wing (laughs) we probably do but i'm i'm just trying to because it's great to have your voice as a sort of because I've often want to ask people is well how many refugees will we let in like okay how many what at what point don't know what, big, what's, where big is it? number but that's don't know. a lot but I'm you see at some point no. you, you have to know a number like you have to have yeah, one but in your that's head. not my fucking job Trevor I'm not the fucking yeah. prime minister of the country here what I'm saying is these are this isn't rocket science. It's pretty tricky, I reckon, to get it I've got right. A four-year-old. It, it got might a four-year-old even be more difficult than rocket science, I yeah. dare say. Yeah. I don't think it is. I don't think it is. Just like, how, why aren't we the, the, the world's leader in uh, uh, sustainable energy right now? It's because none of the people who should have been mm. Poor building no leadership mm. should have been investing in the future infrastructure of our country to deal with the realities. Honest, honest question to, from me to you guys. How many of you think that coal isn't going to take a massive hit in the next 20 years? You're right. It's going to, it's going to, you know, it's, I don't even think it's worth opening up the Galilee basin for it because, you know, they, they keep talking about the demand from India, but India keeps saying, well, we're, we're building more and more renewable plants. So, I don't think that there's going to be demand for the coal that they're going to dig up in 10 years' time. What's going to happen to our economy in 10 years when coal hits a brick wall? Well, I don't know. How is this related to immigration? 
because I don't think you'll get an argument from us, Cam, yeah, we, about we re, re, okay. renewable energy or, or I was, the I was buttering you up, of coal. I was buttering you up with a soft softball question. Right. <laughs> right. right. So but, but my next I, question is, yeah. how many of you think that we're not going to have a massive amount of people trying to get into this country 20 years from now when climate change has progressed by another couple of decades, shit's getting hotter, the sea's rising. I think it's a real prospect. It's a real prospect, yeah, for sure. So what are we doing about preparing for that? Well, what are we going to do? We, just build a We've signed up for 12 thing. submarines that are going to cost $50 billion. <laughs> We're going to get Donald and, Trump to come in and build a big wall around the entire country. This, is, this whole bullshit about numbers, this is a reality. This is going to happen. Cam, it's interesting that you mentioned Donald Trump because this is a, a common assumption, uh, you know, uh, that if, you, if you're a little bit uh, hesitant about uh, immigration, then you must be a fan of Donald Trump. I mean, where's the connection? I didn't say there was a connection. Did you say Donald Trump? I don't know. But you did say you did say you felt like we we can invite Donald Trump down to build a wall around. You did say that you felt like you were in a a Rupert Murdoch sort of right wing um, Breitbart sort of interview situation, and I do want to take you up on that because you'll get no but no complaint from us about all sorts of policies for improving the lot of the working class and for a whole range of truly left-wing issues. So, you know, we, we would be basically left-wingers, except we have this issue with, with the inherent racism in, in cultural policy and we're worried about immigration. But other than that, we're completely left. But this is, this was, is where was the left... I, I know, but this is where the left refuses to take on these subjects and talk about them honestly. So... The Greens and Labor just they just they just won't talk about them. The, the left Sorry, has abandoned you just use this the field. word Labor and left in the same sense. Yeah, that's yeah, proving my point, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, to get back to the twelfth man's thing. I mean, I was making the Trump thing facetiously, but just to say, look, well, you can't build a wall to stop this from happening. This is going to happen. So, like with the coal conversation, we need to be having just conversations at, mm. at the highest level of civil and corporate Australia about what are we doing to build the infrastructure to prepare our nation for what's coming down the pipeline. But our, as you know, Cam, our system's broken. Our political system is broken. The, the people uh, with the money are funding and putting in people in charge who suit their needs and... It's, it's broken. Right. And so my point with immigration is um, theoretically I think we can handle millions of people coming into this country because we've got a lot of empty land. We're very wealthy. Uh, we've got things mostly right. I agree with you guys before. I mean I think Australia uh, does very well. We've, we've somehow been able to cobble together uh, a pretty good uh, – uh, um, socioeconomic platform for the majority of people. Um, a lot of people get screwed, but majority, you know, we do pretty well by comparison to most countries. But we, we lack vision. We lack leadership on both of those amongst other issues. I think we're quibbling over the wrong things. When, we're, when you're saying, well, how many can we have? 
are we and what would we do with them today? That's the wrong line of discussion. What we should be thinking about is what would we need to do over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years to be ready to take on millions of new people into this country in a way that's good for them and is good for the country as a whole. I like that, Cam. That's, no, I that's good. I just stood up and had my hand over my heart as you were saying that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was nodding sagely. That was By good. By the way, can I, can I say at this juncture that I have never been to a dawn service and I never will go to one? Yeah, I, I know you said that the other day. Why is that? Oh, the, the whole thing just uh, appalls me. Um, I'm and and hearing you guys talk about the uh, the worship that goes on, and it just means I have even more reason why I won't go. But uh, it, it it does. Um, it, I think since the Howard era, in particular, there has been an increasing um, glorification of uh, war in this country, built around Anzac Day as sort of the focal point, uh, even though. The, the government and a lot of pro Anzacs will deny it. I can pull out, and I do this every year. This year, I managed to just keep my mouth shut because I had more important things what? to do. But yeah, I know it, it was tough. Trust me. But um, you know, you you can pull out the media coverage and and look at the dog whistle terms that are being mm. used across the media coverage. It's very much about glorification, um, and anyone who says it's not is kidding themselves. I would have no problem with it. If the overarching message of Anzac Day was, let this be a lesson to us not to get involved in stupid wars, mm. not to listen to what our politicians tell us about why we should get involved in stupid wars, because we end up not losing our own citizens, but going and committing acts of murder against people of other countries that are following their own stupid political leaders. Let this be a lesson to us. The next time one of our prime ministers says we're getting involved in, in a war and says, well, promise me, I've I, I got good reasons. I just can't share them with you because they were top secret. We say, shut the fuck up. No, we are not going to sign up for this unless you convince us with data. Look, I agree with your sentiment there, but I guess I go along and I attend with my own thoughts in my mind and I don't consider that the government projects their ideology onto my attendance. But, you know, you, you feel that they would and that's quite No, I, I'm just too lazy to get out of bed and go. I just right. it, it doesn't connect with me yeah. as an Australian citizen as well. So good thing I'm not yeah. sitting in a citizenship test. Yeah. Hey, a change of topic, Cam. I'm conscious of your time and I know you've – and we're going to talk about your CV later in your podcast. But a favourite topic of yours is free will, I believe. And, yeah, it doesn't exist. And we've never discussed it. And I'm going to uh, – I've got a link to an article here that uh, the dear listener can – look up later on and um, I'll just read it's about a book that's come out called Things That Bother Me um, Free Will for which my accomplishments in life I'm entitled to claim credit question mark we surely all agree that some Trumpish child of privilege born to wealth deserves no credit for striking it rich but as Strawson visibly demonstrates the matter goes deeper and gets a lot more uncomfortable than that what if you're super rich but got there thanks to your intelligence? You were just lucky to be born intelligent. What if differences in intelligence are down to nurture, not nature? Again, luck. You didn't choose your parents or most of your teachers, and in any case, you might not have been gifted with the self-discipline to learn from them. Okay, but what if you taught yourself the self-discipline? Still luck. 
you are gifted with the sort of character capable of cultivating self-discipline. On and on it goes. Whatever your station in life, you got there by following some course of action. But if that course of action were wholly your doing, you still had to be the kind of person able to pursue it. And even if you became that kind of person by the sweat of your brow, you still must have already been the kind of person who could raise that sweat. Cam, you agree with all that by the sounds of it? Yeah, free will is just scientifically ridiculous. I mean, it can't possibly exist. Um, never has, never will. Um, so, yeah, I think Galen's uh, spot on. Huh. Anybody want to argue? Not really. I read, I read um, um, Sam Harris's essay on free will several years back and he provided some pretty convincing um, scientific evidence that free will doesn't exist as well. He said they, they took people into laboratories and I, I don't recall the details of the tests, how they set them up, but he said they could measure, they could measure a, a, a response in the brain of the person they were testing and they said the decision, um, the, the signal that they got from the brain when a decision was made to perform an act was registered on their equipment before it actually registered in the conscious mind of the person doing the act. Right. So they, basically they said it was something happening inside the, the subconscious brain that was making the decision before the person carrying that brain was aware of it. Right. Which was quite interesting. Mm. I know Sam Harris has sort of talked about it a lot. I've never really got into it, and Hugh Harris is into it. And this is the first sort of article I've had the time to read, and it seems to make sense. I don't know, is it depressing or not depressing? Is it, is it liberating at the same time? As I think it's a little depressing right. because, um, you know, I was a member of the Liberal Party for God knows how many years, and um, I remember thinking to myself, you just got to pull yourself up. Mm. But if you read this... You can't pull yourself up if you're born into the wrong family and that sort of thing. Uh, I don't think no, no, so. I you don't can. think Sam Harris would, would but, take it quite that but, far. Uh, well, if you don't have the the free will to pull yourself up, well... Uh, but environment if, is a big factor. If you, don't See, have, the, if you don't have the inherited capacity to pull yourself up or to learn the skill of pulling yourself up or or to be motivated to learn the skill to buy the book to be... Now, I can't speak for Cameron here, but out of the three of us around this table anyway, I was the one that was a child of privilege Mm. and I went through private schools and got educated. So I can see that argument there. Now, you two weren't, but you both got educated Mm. too. So, you know, how do you account for that? Well, surely there's an argument saying that if, if government was responsible, it would do its level best to provide the, the education on an equal basis for every single mem- citizen and, and provide the best po- possible opportunities for them to, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, make those sorts of decisions that will result in a constructive, fulfilling uh, mutually fulfilling, you know, for everybody in the society, choices. Mm. Did you stand up again, Cam? And no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wrote a book on free will too that um, thankfully came out six months before Sam Harris's, so I couldn't be uh, accused of uh, trying to ride on his coattails. Really? 
Yeah, it's called The Three Illusions. And I did a podcast on it as well with Ray last year where we sort of read through the book and then discussed it and had some people come on to talk about it and that kind of stuff. And I I did an interview um, only a couple of months ago with um, a philosopher from the United States, a guy by the name of Dr. Richard Carrier, mm. who teaches a course on free will. And um, he and I were having dinner in Durham, North Carolina earlier in the year and we got into a debate about free will, and uh, he's a compatibilist. Um, I think compatibilism is piss weak. So we we ended up we agreed that we do a podcast on it. And having listened to Sam Harris's podcast with Daniel Dennett, where they had the same divide, Dennett being a compatibilist, Harris not being, their podcast was atrocious. I wanted to reach in and punch both of them in the face. But uh, Richard and I actually ended up agreeing. Uh, we we came to a, a common position, which was interesting. Um, and in, but anyway, in, in 50 words or less, what, what's a compatibilist usually yeah, so, believe? So a compatibilist believes that you can have determinism and free will, a form of free will, they would say, that coexist. They're compatible with each other. So a hardcore determinist like myself and Sam will say determinism negates free will. A compatibilist will say, no, 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 you, you can have the laws of physics and have free will, but it's a kind of free will. It's not real free will. It's, 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 it's a form of free will. And, and what Richard and I determined through our conversation is really we're using different definitions of free will. So as, as Plato said, the beginning of wisdom is the definition of terms. And I think you always have to start a conversation about free will and defining what do you mean by free will, because people have different ideas of what free will means. Hmm. Do you guys want to, Tell me what your definition of free will is. I don't have one because I've only ever skirted around the topic and never really read it deeply, so I don't have one. I, I'm just pulling one together now. I suppose it is meaning um, that you have the ability to make your decisions yourself. Twelfth man? Oh, I hadn't really given it much thought. Um, having okay. ha- having well, read Sam Harris, I'm, I'm sort of pretty much in agreement with you, Cam, but um, I suppose I'd like to think that that I'm not as hardliner on it as you, that perhaps there are some uh, external factors that influence the decisions we make, but I don't really have a clear definition on it. And I think that's actually true of most people that I've met. It's not something that most people think about in their daily lives, which is a, which is a tragedy, I think. I think it's actually one of the most important uh, things in terms of philosophy that we should all think about should be drilled into us from primary school, whether or not we have free will, because it it underlies so much of our lives and and our psychological and emotional health as, as individuals. And I'll explain why in a minute. But let me go back to my definition. So I think what most people mean if they talk about free will is the ability to think and act outside of cause and effect. Mm-hmm. Because if your thoughts and your decisions and your actions are all governed by cause and effect or determinism or the laws of physics, then you're not free. You're just fulfilling prior cause. Now, the way that I my, – my quick summary that I've used for 20 years um, on this is to say that and stop me if you disagree with any of these um, uh, uh, theses, decisions are thoughts. 
Agree? Mm -hmm. Sure. Thoughts are properties of the brain. Mm -hmm. I have people that disagree with me on that. They go, no, well, I don't think we can come to that conclusion, which is a whole other conversation. Um, The brain is made of chemicals. Mm -hmm. Chemicals are made of atoms. Mm -hmm. Atoms obey the laws of physics at all times. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I would suggest that your decisions obey the laws of physics at all times, unless there is a break in that argument somewhere, a break in the logic. Is, is this coming around to this thing of consciousness, that we don't understand consciousness? and Not really, because... About? No, because if you speak to a neuroscientist, and I've interviewed a number of them over the years on podcasts... Um, Most consciousness researchers will agree with you that consciousness is also a property of the brain. Therefore, it also obeys the laws of physics. Mm -hmm. There are, again, some fringe people who will say, well, not necessarily. Consciousness might be something else not to do with the brain, but that's an extremely fringe and not a scientific um, theory, really, because they don't have a theory behind it. Can I I just stop you there for a moment? So you're saying that because they're all obeying the laws of physics, then there's no possibility of external factors influencing their behaviour. You know, I don't think you're really saying that, but I, it just occurred to me we're all talking into microphones. Now, microphones obey the law of physics. Now, the microphone is going to behave differently if I speak than it will if I don't speak. So the external influence coming from me speaking uh, close to the microphone is having an influence, isn't it? So, yeah, your brain is your brain is not what a physicist would call a closed system. Twelve man, it it interacts with things outside of it. That's that's how and, science and works. That's sort of the point I'm making. Mm. No, absolutely. But all of those things. So, if I'm talking to you guys on there and you say, "Hey, Cameron, your your view on on cultural imperialism is wrong. You should go read a book." That goes into my brain. I, I, I hear <laughs> – I don't want to get into the way that sound vibrations you know, uh, tickle the hairs of my ears and that turns an electrical signal which goes to a part of my Wernicke's region or something in my brain which then my brain translates into sound. That goes into a different part of my prefrontal cortex that starts a chain reaction that says, yeah, maybe I will go read that book. So then I read that book that provides other inputs – into my brain, and then the neural structure of my brain that thinks about cultural imperialism may change. So that's all based on physics, though. There's, there's nothing in the process of learning or thinking that is outside of the laws of physics. That's not what determinism means. Determinism just means is that the way that you think and act is 100% determined by the laws of physics uh, as they are applied at an atomic level and subatomic level. So you said in your life it makes a difference. So uh, how does that work in your everyday yes. life? So, uh, by the way, I, I stopped believing in free will 27 years ago. Um, so it's, it's something that I've thought about, written about um, for a long time. Um, and what I've learned over that time is that I think the, the, the things that fuck people up a lot, guilt, Anxiety, mm-hmm. resentment, anger, regret. things that really mm-hmm. – sorry? Regret. Regret, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, 
those things are predicated on the assumption that I and the people around me have free will. Mm -hmm. If I stopped believing in free will, when I stopped believing in free will, over time what I realized is that guilt didn't really make sense any longer. The things that I had done, which I felt guilty about, I realized, well, I did the only thing that my brain could possibly do at that exact point in time based on the neural structure of my brain at that point in time, which I wasn't in control of. Mm -hmm. It was the result of the nature-nurture stuff you talked about on your show last week, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, in terms of anger and resentment towards other people of things that they had done which hurt me. My father was, a, was an abusive alcoholic, um, beat me while I was a kid, you know, psychologically, emotionally, uh, um, did a lot of damage to me and other people and my family around him. I realized that he had to do exactly what he had to do based on his neural architecture at that point in time, which was probably the result of genetics and shit that happened to him growing up in Glasgow with an alcoholic, abusive father, et cetera, et cetera. So my anger and resentment towards him or to ex-girlfriends or to former bosses or whoever it was mm. um, evaporated because there wasn't a logical foundation for it to rest upon. The same with anxiety, worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow or next year or five years from now or, or you know, the results of things that I've done um, – have I done? Have I made the right decision in this business or that business or this marriage or whatever? Um, I realise that all of those things are going to play out exactly as they have to, according to the laws of physics. You might want to call it fatalism, but it's really based on an understanding, a fundamental understanding of physics, science. That that you know, the universe is just atoms basically interacting with each other and playing out according to the laws of physics. And humans aren't special. We're not exempted from the rest of the universe, the laws of physics playing out. We are part of that soup. In fact, I would argue we are that soup. There is no differentiation between me and the rest of the universe, really, when you get down to a subatomic level. But anyway, that's a whole other fucking story. So how do you feel about um, uh, crime and punishment then and jails and, and uh, I mean, somebody commits a crime and um, on one level... They don't shake somebody's hand um, at a citizenship ceremony. Yeah, look, this is the common one of the common objections that people have. The first objection I normally get... Well, they feel that that's a problem. Just, just forgive them, but anyway. I, the first objection I get is often the one that Scott said, oh, I, I'd be depressed. Somebody said to me once, you know, I would, I would kill myself if I thought that was true. I was like, well, maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. You don't have any free will. <laughs> <laughs> we find out. Um, but it's actually the opposite. I think that's that's the result. That's like people saying, well, if I stopped believing in God, I would kill myself. Well, no, you wouldn't. And, and there are millions of atheists that will tell you that that's actually not only not true, but the opposite of that true is that letting go of that false belief, that illusion of God is actually liberating and empowering it's it's not something that would depress you the same is true of free will in fact i often say that um the belief in free will is a, a faith-based belief that's uns unscientific as much as a belief in god is they're very very similar mm -hmm. um so uh what was your question back, back to uh, crime and punishment oh, then. crime People and punishment who commit right. crimes how do we okay. view that if there's no free well, will this is one of the things that richard and i uh, richard carry and i talked about in depth so my view of people that commit a crime 
and let's let's talk about the big ones. Let's talk about murder, rape. Uh, uh, um, what are the other big ones? If I don't know, whatever the other big ones are, Speedy. take those two. Um, Pedophilia. Yeah, not shaking people's hands at citizenship ceremonies. The yeah, big ones, yeah. like the really big ones. Yeah. Holding a grudge. If we, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a the way that people act is based. 100% on the neural architecture of their brains, which they have no control over. Again, it's a combination of genetics and, and the experiences that they've had in their life that's shaped the architecture of their brain. So it's this combination of nature-nurture. So when somebody's brain is, is performing poorly according to the norm, whether they're a psychopath or a sociopath or, or they're a pedophile or whatever it is, the way I would view that is to say, okay, their brain is broken, you know, to simplify it, mm -hmm. in, in, in a way that they are, uh, go, they are or uh, have the potential to hurt other people and all themselves. So we have to remove them from society so they can't hurt other people and all themselves. Um, but it's not, it's not punishment. It's not blame. It's, it's about a society pr protection measure. Yeah, it's, it's and, a kind and it can of be done social with, hygiene in a sense, isn't it? Exactly, and it can be done with with empathy, and it can also be done with a scientific mindset. Like I want to study psychopaths. You know, there are developments all the time in fMRI imaging of of brains where we're starting to be able to see what's going on in people's brains. And, you know, ideally, you know, I, I think we'll get to a point at some point in the future, if Trump doesn't kill us all, is that uh, we will be able to look at people's brains at the age of 5 and 10, mandated fMRIs of their neural architecture, and be able to say, oh, look, okay, so this person at age 15 has 12 of the 20 indicators of potential psychopathy or sociopathy or pedophilia, or being a liberal voter, or, or whatever it is. One, and, one of and, those is probably going to be a refusal to shake hands, but, but, but continue. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure which one. And we, we, <laughs> we so then we have, a, we have an ethical question. What, what do we do about that without mm. getting into um, the uh, Philip K. Dick, Tom Cruise movie scenarios, pre-crime scenarios? We want to be aware of those people and go, okay, well, this person – Looked like similar to the um, PCLR test that you could do today to see where you rank as a psychopath. Uh, we, by the way, I've been writing a book on psychopaths for the last few years as kind of one of my other sort of hobbies. Is we say, okay, well, um, psychopaths aren't necessarily bad. You know, I used to work for Bill Gates for many years. I met Bill. Pretty sure Bill's, you know, pretty high on the psychopath scale as well as the Asperger scale. But he's also done a lot of good stuff. So, and Steve Jobs was probably a psychopath and. And uh, 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 Napoleon probably was a psychopath. And these guys can do good things and they can do bad things. But uh, as a society, I think we want to extract the most value that we can from these people's inherent innate talents mm. and, and, and keep an eye on the, the bad side of it as well. Um, so, you know, I think we will still have laws. We will still have uh, ways of removing dangerous people from society. But it's a bit like the insanity defense is held today, which is used in a very small number of circumstances. But when somebody is able to successfully make a, an insanity uh, plea, 
um, we say, okay, they weren't responsible for what they did at that time because they were insane. What I'm saying is that nobody's in control of anything they do at any time. We still need to remove them like we remove people that uh, make a successful insanity defense from society for their own sake and for the sake of others. But we, we, we treat them with more empathy and then we go and study what's wrong with them and see if we can figure out how we can A, cure, B, prevent other people from getting as bad as they are at some point in the future. I, I suppose you still need penalty provisions and the threat of jail, etc., because there will be people who will make a decision to either do or not do a crime because a penalty either is or is not in place. So there's another reason for having penalties and punishment systems in place is people will base a decision on the basis of what's likely to happen to them if they get caught. Yeah, I'm sure that is true in a certain number of cases. I don't know how often that is true, but yeah, these are all become data inputs into the neural architecture of that person when they're at a juncture where they need to decide action A or action B. Okay, quick change of topic. I'm still conscious of your time, Cam, and I know you've got a lot on. You were involved in organising Sunday Assembly, and um, uh, would you like to just tell the dear listener what Sunday Assembly is and was and what happened to it, in Brisbane at least? Yeah, well, we ran it for four years in Brisbane. So Sunday Assembly started, um, oh, 2013-ish, I think, in London by a couple of stand-up comics um, who neither of them were religious, but they were in a car uh, going to a gig one day and, and started talking about the good things that they had experienced in their lives uh, with religion, mostly a sense of community, uplifting feelings um, at various points. Um, and they both kind of said, well, we like those aspects of of religion, but you know, we, we're not believers, so we don't want to participate in it because there's a lot of it that rubs us the wrong way. So they created this thing as basically a they their original um, pitch for it was it was an atheist church, but it kind of evolved very quickly as a, an all inclusive place for people who are religious or not religious, where they tried to take the best things from church, uh, an inspirational talk, uh, a reading, uh, singing songs, but usually rock songs, pop songs, because there is. Um, scientific evidence to say that singing together as a group uh, causes release of endorphins. It's a positive thing with tea and cake and afterwards and, and getting involved in, in local community works and, and charitable stuff and all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, it is something that I'd thought about for years and years and years because I had very similar ideas. Um, grew up as a Catholic, left when I was eight, um, had, had, always thought, you know, there should be a place for atheists. Being an atheist shouldn't be an entirely solitary existence. We should be able to get together and talk about the sorts of things we've been talking about today, ethics and values and morals and what kind of a society do we want to live in and inspirational stuff and, and, and how we're going to handle our fears and, and communal support and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, so when I heard about these guys, my wife who grew up as a Mormon, as I said, and she and I talked about, you know, there's some really good things that the Mormons do, a lot of crazy shit, but some good things too. They have very, very tight communal structures and they look out for each other, generally speaking. We heard about this. We said, hey, let's, let's do one. So we contacted the London folks and they said, yeah, sure, we'll help you set one up in Brisbane. So we launched one in Brisbane. Um, and we ran it for, as I said, about four years. 
uh, at the end, it, it, we just really struggled to get um, Brisbane people to give a shit and turn up on a right. regular basis. We had a thousand people come through it, I think, over the course of four years. But the numbers just weren't big on a on a monthly basis. We would run a monthly uh, assembly. And it was taking up a, a huge amount of my time in particular mm. to run, and I've got a million projects on, as you know. And eventually I just said, okay, well, for whatever reason, we didn't get the formula right in Brisbane. And by the, and it struggled all around Australia as well. It's doing gangbusters in England, all over England, doing gangbusters in the United States. Um, but in a, all the Australian, except Canberra, I think the Canberra chapter is doing very well. Mm-hmm. But all the other capital cities have really struggled to, to make it work, and we, we don't really – don't really know why. I saw a thing the other night on 7.30 report, I think, about pub choirs. Mm. And it sort of struck me that it was a sort of – had some similarities with Sunday Assembly, the pub choir, people getting together and singing at least and that part of it anyway. Yeah, I'm a big believer that we need to rebuild the social fabric. I mean, any of you guys ever read Bowling Alone? No. No. Uh, I don't remember who wrote it, but Father – Father Bob Maguire um, gave me a copy of it years ago. When I lived in Melbourne, I used to be part of Father Bob's um, charity group. We'd go out. I'd go out and, um, you know, take food to the the people living in shelters and that kind of stuff. And, and he and I did a podcast for years, sort of the atheist and the Catholic priest and tried to drill down on a lot of social um, uh, entrepreneurship issues. Anyway, he gave me this book. And, and, and the premise of the book is quite simple. It's the, You go back to the – 30s and 40s and 50s, and men had their bowling groups. This is with an American focus, but I'm sure there was an Australian equivalent. Men would get together two or three times a week Mm -hmm. for their bowling group. Women would get together two or three times a week to do knitting or book clubs or whatever it was. Uh, um, And then with the advent of people moving into the suburbs and moving away from their place of birth and and television, these things sort of broke down and we've become more isolated sitting in our own homes um, after work and watching the TV or jumping online and watching porn or whatever it is. Um, and so I, I really feel that in Australia in particular, uh, we, we need a lot more social fabric rebuilding that's not built around sport or getting pissed. Mm. That's built around having good meaty discussions around – it doesn't have to be highfalutin stuff like we've been talking about here tonight, but just about – what are, what are your fears? What are your ambitions? What are your dreams? What do you like? What do you don't like about life in general? Um, person to person, just just that sharing, that connectivity, and particularly getting people outside of their social bubbles mm. together to talk about these things because it's that kind of diversity that leads to broadening. I mean, there's plenty of studies now. Uh, I've seen a lot of this out of the U.S., um, you know, when, when conservative voters actually meet a gay person and have a conversation with a gay person, you know, their, their views on things like gay marriage change dramatically and rapidly once they just meet a, an out gay person. They go, oh, right, okay, well, there you go. You seem nice and normal. Fine, I guess I'm <laughs> for gay marriage now. So we have, we have to rebuild that. So that was a big part of it for me, and I'm sure the, the, the pub choirs and that kind of stuff uh, – play a similar role. Yeah, we've been saying for a long time that uh, one of the problems of the rationalist, um, atheist, secular movement is the lack of community and sort of social interaction and that the church groups have a big advantage in just getting people physically together as often as they do. And um, 
it's we need to find that sort of replacement and yeah sunday assembly was one crack at it but didn't work but there's got to be Got to be some other ways that we do it. So I hope so. Yeah. And Chrissy and I went to a few atheist meetups before we started Sunday Assembly, but they were fairly bitter, uh, negative experiences. Yeah. And I'm talking as I'm a fairly mil- – I thought I was a militant atheist <laughs> until I went to those things. I was like, oh, shit, you yeah. guys are damaged, man. Yeah. <laughs> so for the moment, people will just have to listen to podcasts like ours and get their community fix that way in a very light sense. Hey, I know well, you that's – that's a very real thing, man. Like that mm. is how I think of our podcast today, mm. that we, we are building global communities of people, engaging them in discussions about ideas and concepts and principles. That's, that's, that is what we're doing. I'm, mm. I'm a big believer in that. Dear listener, I met Cam in the flesh for the first time just the other week, and it was at a meetup for podcasters in Brisbane at the Norman B Hotel. And that was a great little community feel to it, Cam. Like just mm. people from all walks of life with – a common interest, and it had a real good community feel to it. And uh, your talk went down really well, and lots of stuff is happening on the Facebook page subsequently. But the good thing about that little group is that we do get together once a month and physically meet, and it's a big essential thing that we need. So there's that. Hey, um, before you go, um, I'm going to get you to talk about your podcast and that, but uh, I know on your podcast you give a bit of a shout-out to people who do a, a review on iTunes for you, and mm-hmm. we've got a new one here. I'll just read this out. Uh, this is from Tobias Dundridge. Um, he says, Brilliant. Possibly my favourite Aussie podcast. Nice one to do the gardening to. There we go. Gardener, huh? Yeah. The one before that was uh, from... Um, Algy, who said, a provocative and informative discussion of current affairs and the intersection of religion and politics, the perfect antidote to religious privilege and snowflake culture, best listened to at 1.5 speed. (laughs) Something about our listeners, you know, there's a compliment and just a slight little (laughs) something else thrown in at the same time. So there you go. Right, Cam, uh, you've got a thousand and one podcasts that you produce. Do you, do you, I mentioned your um, bullshit filter podcast the other week, but would you like to just? I've got about two hundred and fifty listeners, Cam, who might become your listeners if you if you relay through what you're up to with your podcasts. Right. Well, after they've listened to me rant for the last ninety <laughs> minutes, probably not. But uh, well, you know, that's what we do anyway on our shows. Yeah. So. Um, the shows that I produce at the moment um, range from – we're doing a show on ancient Rome. Uh, it started with about 50 episodes on Julius Caesar and then we went into Augustus Caesar and we're getting towards the end of Augustus. We're going to go right through the Julio-Claudians. So that's called uh, Life of Caesar. It's a very deep, 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 serious history show. Each episode goes for about an hour. We've done about 93, 94 hours on Augustus Caesar already. But there's a lot of rock songs, dick jokes, uh, boyish uh, schoolboy humor, homoeroticism between myself and my co-host. A lot of, lot of stupidity with a lot of deep history and discussion. So we like to try and combine those two together because we're childish, uh, but also history nerds. Um, we also did a long series on Alexander the Great that is now finished, but that went for about 140 hours, I think. We went right through from his father, Philip of Macedon, through Alexander, and then through Alexander's successors, uh, Ptolemy and the Seleucus and those sorts of guys. So that was interesting. 
We also do a show at the moment on um, the Cold War. Um, we're about, I don't know, 50 or 60 episodes into that. We're just getting up to the bombing of Hiroshima in 1945. <laughs> so uh, that's how deep we've gone into that. I think yep. we did 20 episodes on the Yalta Conference, 25 episodes on the Yalta Conference. Yep. We, we, we've got a show that we started recently on the Renaissance, uh, but we're starting the Renaissance in 300 CE yeah. uh, because – my take is if you don't understand the fall of Rome, you can't understand the Renaissance. So we've gone back to the beginning of the fall of Rome. And, and listeners uh, to this podcast will enjoy the early episodes because you talk about the sort of the rise of Christianity and um, and how that all came about in some detail again in that podcast. Yep. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. We, we go detail on, on well, the rise of Christianity. We don't really. We, we start at sort of 300. My documentary that I'm making uh, inventing the Messiah is about the rise of Christianity from sort of 40, 50 CE through to 300. And then the podcast takes over at 300 and goes from Constantine onwards. Um, uh, and then we do the bullshit filter, as you said, which which is really looking at more contemporary issues. Uh, we're taking stuff that's in the news and trying to break it down. Uh, we started on this with the Syrian civil war. As I said earlier, we did 25 hours on that. Uh, we started that with the death of Muhammad and then went forwards uh, so people could understand the Sunni-Shia divide, which is what's driving a lot of um, what's happening in the Middle East. Um, we then did a series on gun control, looking at Australia, the United States, the UK and Canada, breaking that down. We're in the middle of a series on the war on drugs, going right back to the 19th century and looking at the progression of what we think of as Schedule One drugs and marijuana today around the Western world and what what's led to the war on drugs, which is hopefully coming to a close in most enlightened countries, although not this one very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but also recently with that, we've started a weekly news show. So every Monday we pull out, like this show really, we pull out half a dozen stories and then Ray and I just riff on them. More of an American or global geopolitical focus than an Australian focus though because Australian politics just kind of bores me uh, most of the time. Uh, so I think that's it, yeah. Mm. Good on you, Cam. Well, I'm... I know that you have got a lot on and you're recording four episodes tomorrow morning with Ray and you've probably got notes you've got to prepare. So are you sick of us? Do you want to move on or do you want to stay with us? <laughs> Man, I, I thought I was going to come on for half an hour. I can't believe I've been here for nearly two hours. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's a privilege and an honour. Um, I love what you do. Keep it up. By the way, my podcast, if people want to listen to them, they go to the thepodcastnetwork.com. You'll find links to all of our shows there. And uh, and well done, boys. Keep doing what you're doing. You're doing a great job, and uh, I'll be uh, I'll be listening. Thanks, Cam. We'll be in touch, no doubt, over time. Great. Thanks. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Cam. Bye Thanks now. for joining us, Cam. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think is a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you 
go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon. And there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth... More than that, less than that, whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks. Thanks.